I think a lot of people look at process as recipe for success or formula for success. And they often forget that it's the perspective and the people that you put into that process that are actually going to make it work. Welcome to episode nine of season three of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we have an author special. In our conversation with our Michael Hendricks, who together with his co-author Panos Panay has written a fascinating book called Two Beats Ahead, What Great Musical Minds Teach Us About Creativity and Innovation. Before we delve into the books, this week saw the release of the Charity Digital Skills Report, and we're very lucky to have one of the report's authors on the podcast, Zoe. You're going to share some stats and tell us what it means for the charity sector. Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Uh, So some of you may have come across the report before. If you haven't, it's become a bit of an annual barometer of where the charity sector is at with digital. And this year, we've seen some really interesting findings showing how charities have adapted and used digital during the pandemic. So for example, close to eight out of 10 are using digital to reach new audiences and 83% had changed their services in response to demand. So there's some really promising signs here about how the sectors had to innovate during a very, very difficult period. Nevertheless, there's obviously some key concerns that are still troubling charities, and I think it's right that these are on their radar. Uh, So digital inclusion has become a very, very big issue for the sector during the pandemic. And in fact, it was one of the issues that charities are most concerned about. So just over half, 52% of charities are worried about excluding some people or groups as they develop their digital plans and that's a very interesting issue I think for us here on uh, Starts at the Top as well having interviewed people like Liz Williams from uh, Future.now previously this issue of of how we take people with us whether people have access to tech whether they've actually got access to data is going to continue to be a really key societal issue in this next phase of the pandemic and so some very very interesting issues emerging there And, and finally I just wanted to touch on a point about well-being which again I know we've discussed on the podcast previously so just under a third of charities said that their staff are burned out from the demands of intense remote working and I think this speaks to a point that we've discussed quite a lot on here previously about how much do employers now need to really mandate that time off uh, that time away from screens and how much do we put the ball in employees courts and say look it's now up to you to manage your own day and your own energy levels and i think some of those themes are going to come up in the books that we're talking about in a a second but and it comes this week i think there was a write-up in the uh, in the newspapers about was it iceland i think iceland's move experiment to a four-day week and how successful that was and so i think there's lots of questions for all organizations to be asking themselves about what the, the sort of the future pattern of work looks like because although we're heading towards the 19th of July and you know, hopefully lots of people are, are going to be having their second dose of the vaccine and, and getting back to what's considered to be normal, 
I don't think the workplace is going to actually get back to normal this year or, or, or really at all. So I think it's about trying to figure out new ways of, of work. I think some of that, as I said, will come out of the of the books that we're going to talk about too. Anything else from the, the, the report that you feel that could be transferable across sectors? Because I think that's a big challenge for all organisations, not just the charity sector. Yeah, one statistic that always gets a lot of interest from the report is the amount of organisations that now have a strategy in place for digital. So whether that is a standalone digital strategy or a really strong presence within the organisational strategy. And there was some significant movement in that this year. Uh, So 60% of charities now have some kind of strategy in place for digital, which is a really positive improvement on last year. And it'd be interesting to think about whether that uh, approach has also shifted across different sectors as well. So if you've got any insights on that, please do tweet us or email us. And Paul, I don't know whether you've got any thoughts from your experience. No, I was just going to say that I've just started work with a big international company based out in, in the Netherlands. And I think lots of the lots of the topics uh, in the books that we're talking about and from the skills report and the fact that they are investing in such a, a large way in their own digital transformation. I'm part of a, a squad of, of people who are working on one aspect of that transformation. And there are other squads across the organisation that, that are working towards the similar aims and, and, and linked aims. It just shows you that it is being taken seriously. The bit that I'm working on is predominantly focused on skills that the organisation would need for the future. And I think it's it's fascinating that it cuts across sectors, right? It's not it's not just uh, charity or big corporates. It's all sorts of organisations are going to be making these these changes and starting to to wrestle with this. So, exciting times ahead. Definitely. Uh, and speaking of exciting times, uh, many of us will be heading to the beach, even if it's in the UK, uh, in a few weeks time. Uh, and in this episode, we wanted to do a roundup of all the latest books that we've been enjoying about leadership, about tech and about change before we get on to our author special interview later. Uh, so, Paul, what were the books that caught your eye recently? Well, I think the one that we probably should start with is one that we've mentioned on the podcast several times. And I think it really struck a nerve and it's fiction. You know, I might have expected to to listen to this podcast and hear us talking about all these wonderful business books about digital. But the two books that I've chosen to talk about are slightly adjacent to that. So the first one is Kazuo Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun, a work of fiction, very much focused on the sort of the world of robotics and AI and human robot interaction, which I think is is something that's that's quite close to a client that I work with and some of the work that I do day to day working with an artificial intelligence startup. So something quite topical. And I guess for me, this was a book and I'm just going to read the back, actually, because I think it's a nice quote that sort of talks about about the, the sort of the content of the book in a better way than a basic synopsis would. Do you believe in the human heart? I don't mean simply the organ, obviously. I'm speaking in the poetic sense, the human heart. Do you think there is such a thing, something that makes each of us special and individual? And so I think at the heart of this book is this story about uh, an AI that uh, constantly sort of wrestles with her own consciousness and an AI that is being um, set up, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but being set up to replicate uh, human emotion in a way that I think is, is really interesting, particularly in the wake of recent projects by the likes of Microsoft and others who are 
looking to use AI to scrape information from the internet so that you can bring loved ones back to life through their shared experiences and the things that they share online. Oh, that's so Black Mirror, isn't it? It totally is. And I think this book sort of fits within that space, doesn't it? It's a sort of a Black Mirror-esque type story. I'm not sure how I felt about it. It Certainly, I, I felt, you know, I turned the pages and I enjoyed the story. I think I felt slightly slightly disengaged from it. I thought the, the, it felt quite cold. I, think, I thought I was being told what to think a little bit more than sort of making up my, my own mind to begin with. Perhaps that sort of cold distancing is something he was he was going after because I think the the subject matter is sort of you know this sort of sense of alienation and distance from from human emotions so I, I don't know how you I think you really really enjoyed it I liked it but I think you really really enjoyed it didn't you I did yes and I think that's partly because it reminded me a lot of another book that I really loved from a couple of years ago I believe called Machines Like Me by Ian McEwan which is also a fictional account is actually based in a kind of parallel universe which is very recognizable it's still the UK uh, about what happens when you have an AI effective living around humans and what that relationship looks like and how everyone how everyone in, interacts and what the consequences are and I found this book very moving actually because in the Ian McEwan book, the AI is actually the most likable, in some ways, the most human and compassionate character. And I felt that the Clara character in this book was very much like that as well. Yeah, I, and I really liked the the relationship between Josie and Rick. So the companion, I think this is the other thing, isn't it? The, the robot set up to to act as a companion to, to humans rather than a, the way that I think we look at or have looked at robots in the past perhaps is subservient, that they do tasks that humans don't want to, whereas this is very much looking at robots and AI as companions. And I think that really played out quite quite well. I liked that that relationship between the, the two children. But also that that blurred line I think between the sort of the sense that these implants or, or enhanced people as well so there was there's this distinction between Josie who uh, is enhanced who has we don't really know exactly what I don't think we're ever told exactly what but has some kind of technological enhancements within her mm-hmm. body or, or or somewhat and she's rich and she can afford all of that and, and Rick is the sort of the next door neighbor who doesn't have that and doesn't have those opportunities and I think that's a really sort of poignant part of the book that says you know will opportunities for people that can afford to have the, the latest technology and experiment with enhancements and things like that will they have the best opportunities in the future I thought that whole side of the book was really really interesting and yeah sort of you know quite heartbreaking conclusion I didn't love it as much as I wanted to interesting oh well good stuff so good we've got a bit of a, a difference of opinion on that one and then your next book was about music I think yeah, so this is interesting, and it'll be interesting to tie this into the one of the books you're going to talk about. So this is a book by a musician who I absolutely love called Jeff Tweedy, and it's called How to Write One Song. I have seen a subtitle to it somewhere on the internet, but the copy I've got is just called How to Write One Song. And I think this is really, really interesting, not only because I'm a big Jeff Tweedy fan. So Jeff Tweedy is uh, from Chicago. He founded a band called Tupelo back in the sort of late 80s, early 90s that was sort of the 
the blueprint i think for this sort of country fusion of country music and, and rock sort of alternative country when that uh, band folded he set up a, a band called wilco wilco still record to today and i've had a really set membership over the past oh, probably 15 years or so but before that I had different people coming in and different people coming out anyway uh, he's quite prolific so he writes a lot of songs for himself and other people and and I think this book which he describes himself as a as and I think this is really sweet a hopeful little book is all about how we have again a quote from the book we have the choice to be on the side of creation or surrender to the powers that destroy and for me this is a book not necessarily about writing us one song but about those little acts of creativity that we all have within us and we all need to nurture uh, within us daily to not lose sight of the fact that we are creative human beings and that there is a, a an itch that we all need to scratch there is a muscle that we all need to exercise within us and that's the, the on the side of, of creativity so i think much like uh, mark commode would describe jaws as a film that's not just about a shark i think this is less about songwriting than it is about making creativity part of your everyday and i think that's um that's lovely and just in in terms in sort of practical terms about the book it frames creativity and habit forming in a positive way this is someone that suffered with addiction in the past and uh, quite badly and how he frames that is really important i think so getting out of creative exercises what you put in you know you only get out as much as you, as you put in and then some really practical help in the middle he, he sort of talks about writing which i think is helpful not just for songwriting but for writing you and i both write blog posts for example and, and have you know aspirations to you know be a writer of some description and there's really practical help like word ladders and cut up techniques things that kids would do to to break up the association of words and, and pictures and things like that so it's really helping me to connect, sort of reconnect with with language in a way that's quite surprising. And I guess two little takeaways from the end of it. I think one of the things he talks about, and this has come up in some of our conversations, the importance of listening really comes up in the in the in the book that we're going to talk about in the in the interview. But uh, he says the best musicians are the best listeners uh, consistently. And he also says uh, when when setting sitting down to create, set a timer. He sort of says the importance of pouring your favourite drink, whether you know, a cup of coffee or a glass of whiskey or whatever it might be, pulling up a, a comfortable chair, getting out your best pad and your favourite pen, you know, all of that stuff shouldn't be overlooked. So I think, yeah, how to write one song, not just about writing songs. I just think it's a nice little book, a very easy and personable read from a, from a really interesting man. Amazing. Wow. I'd love to read that. You've uh, sold it to me. I'm really keen to dig into that. And I love the points about creativity and how to be a better wordsmith. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And I think those little things that don't necessarily have time to do in your day to day life. So one exercise, he says, for example, is to sit down and think about any subject and write a list of words. And then on another column, look around the room that you're in and write a list of all the things that you can see and then just start to stitch them together. And he comes out with nonsense, but it's nonsense that actually makes you think of things. In a, it makes you visualise language in a way that um, is, is really, really interesting. Fascinating. So there were three books that I wanted to briefly talk about before we get to our interview. Uh, and the first one is one which perhaps quite a lot of our listeners may have heard of already, came out a couple of months ago, called A World Without Email, Find Focus and Transform the Way You Work Forever by Cal Newport. Now, it was really interesting reading this book because I saw quite a lot of the press coverage before I actually got the book itself. 
And I think a lot of the coverage was very much focused on what, there's nothing here about Zoom. Uh, is it realistic to do away with email completely? And I think some of the media coverage out there perhaps didn't look at all the nuances of, of the book itself. So that's what I wanted to focus on. I thought this was a really interesting, really practical read. Firstly, it highlights the absolute time suck that email has become. Now, I have to say on a personal level, I'm becoming ever more frustrated by how much of a clunky, uh, high friction manual product email is there's no way we would have designed it that way if we were developing email as a product now and he talks about how three hours are lost to email per day and in 2019 the average office worker was sending 126 business emails a day so that's one every four minutes and if you think about the time we could get back if we were using email in in a better way or maybe I'm just using it less for the right things then we could all be so much more productive so his working hypothesis as part of this book is all is about how whether it is email whether it's instant messaging it creates this what he calls this always on hyperactive hive mind which means that you're constantly context switching between different tasks you just can't get your head in the game for deep work and that in itself kills efficiency and also it means that the stuff that you were just talking about creativity and innovation is much harder to do because you're constantly moving between all these different demands it's a really practical book it's not a purist book either some of the articles I'd seen about there had perhaps indicated and he suggests a lot of really useful stuff about mapping your comms workflows in your organization some really good tips if you use Trello to organize your workload which I know a lot of people do and he's got a very useful guide towards the end of the book about how you can do that and then also about when you want might want to be transparent about your working habits so one of the things he suggests in the book is to block out time to look at email less regularly but not to do a Tim Ferriss to actually not necessarily tell people you're only looking at it twice a day rather than having you know this 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 quite terse out of office or on all the time so I thought that was was really interesting and it's probably going to be a very useful guide for people with all the information overload we're all facing in this world of remote working yeah I really liked that point about uh, not telling people uh, <laughs> when your times are <laughs> Because I think people are quite keen to point out, aren't they? Well, I only answer email between nine and 10 and four and five. Well, well, good for you. Now I know when to email you um, <laughs> so that you see it. So so I think it's it's a good point to to try and um, and keep that stuff quiet. But the, the link back to the Jeff Tweedy book is, is right, you know, and I think it's, it's about being purposeful. It's about setting that time, isn't it? And saying, right, I am going to work in this way. Otherwise, yeah, I think you, you do lose sight of the... Um, of, of the, the deep work time, the time where you actually can get the things that you need to do done but rather than being led by other people's agendas. And I guess this is probably something for a future episode, maybe something we should do in, in season in season four. But I think that's around um, how to do this when you are a consultant as well, because 
I think the struggle for, for me and probably for you is that um, when you have access to organisation systems that you're working with, so for example, at the moment, having access to an Office 365 environment that doesn't necessarily connect up with my working environment, and then having to switch contexts to another, another client working on different systems, I think all of that stuff can really start to uh, to, to, to burn. Um, and I think that's where it starts to, to worry me is the, the context switching is exhausting. But if the alternative is sort of going into a big corporate organisation and, and being bombarded by email 24-7, then perhaps we're on the right side of that. I don't know. Yeah, it's always really interesting as a consultant. I think that uh, moment of dipping in and out of other people's working cultures and their kind of cadences for email and meetings and, and every organisation is different. I think that's the big thing I've, I've learned in this job. So speaking of working cultures, the second book I wanted to talk about is called The Conversation, How Talking Honestly About Racism Can Transform Individuals and Organisations by Robert Livingston. Uh, I thought this was a fascinating book about how to have really difficult conversations. It's obviously focused on equality, diversity and inclusion. But actually, I think a lot of the principles are very useful for any kind of challenging conversation that you might have. And it feels especially timely for the the charity sector because obviously there's been a lot of discussion about how we can make the charity sector more inclusive, a more safer place over the last year. So this is definitely a very good book to read if you're a charity leader. So some of the tips that uh, Livingston offers are about having very clear and direct and bold and unapologetic conversations, but also to have some empathy for the perspective of people who may not currently share your commitment to inclusion. So they may be earlier on in the journey. And he says, we've got to listen to those people's fears and understand their willingness to to learn so that you can find out where they are at. I suppose it's a little bit like our thing that we always say about meeting people in digital where they are and then looking at how you can make progress from the, the place where they, they currently are, are at. Some great tips in here about how you can create that psychological safety for any tricky conversation and in particular around equality, diversity and inclusion he talks about how we need to gather the facts so that we've got a lot of evidence of those conversations but also to have that space for feelings so that people on both sides can express how they are dealing with all of this stuff and a great tip about focusing on the problem not the person which I thought was a a very very good way to to frame these discussions and as you go through the book there are um, many useful checklists for how to structure and have really difficult conversations uh, around equality diversity inclusion and I think that will be very useful as a lot of organisations move forward with this stuff sounds like a great read uh one that i might have to borrow yeah i've already recommended it to one of my clients actually well, i think it's important isn't it in every single wake of uh, of, of life and i was going to talk uh, just going to mention the the, the football then right. <laughs> <laughs> I always link it back but always but, the football always. but I think it was a really really interesting conversation I was listening to on a podcast between with, with Ian Wright where he was talking about exactly that meeting like people where they are because during the t- current tournament for example he stood in a stadium doing a job for ITV as a black man 
whilst there is all the sort of the taking of the knee and the sort of the misunderstanding there and the miss and he's very much the same you know it's just disappointing him that that, that there is a sort of a mix of, of booing and applause and last night it was it was it was absolutely fine we're recording this just after the the semi-finals it was interesting he took that same view you know i have to understand where they are but what i need to help them to do is i need to help to educate them you know so it wasn't anger it was I understand where they are. I don't agree with it, but this is how I'm going to frame the discussion. So I just think it was useful, uh, useful context. And you have a final book. Yes, absolutely. I do. Uh, so this is a, a really good one to read as we all begin to think about the, the future and where we, we go from here as society gradually reopens. Uh, so this is called The Reset, Ideas to Change, How We Work and Live by Elizabeth UV Benene. Uh, it's a really thought provoking book about where we go from here after the great working from home experiment of the last year. And UV Benene, who I think is a journalist, I think she's written for the, the FT, argues that we need to take this as a fundamental opportunity to reinvent how we work and live. And we can't do that in a vacuum. We need to think about the knock-on implications for society, for community, for the cities that we live in and what they look like, uh, and ultimately what fulfills us all. Uh, there's a great chapter in here on organisational culture, which I thought was really fascinating. So she talks about how it can't just be about perks. It can't just be about free yoga sessions and free fruit and where your ping pong table is in the office. Uh, but ultimately, we've got to do the really hard work of thinking about culture in terms of, of commitment and what we all bring to our jobs. And I think that's a bit of a game changer because a lot of organisations still see culture as something that's very top down. It's set from boardroom level. But actually what she's arguing for is that it needs to be something that's a lot more crowdsourced and has a bit more flex and a little bit more nebulousness to it. So I thought that was really fascinating how you can see it in the context of overturning this feudal hierarchy. <laughs> She also talks about how in the, the digital age, we all need to create our own sets of, of communities. And I think a lot of us are, are doing this already, actually. So, you know, whether it's you're part of a running group on Facebook or a group of people on WhatsApp who like a particular football team to your conversation earlier, we all need to think about what communities we want to be part of and accept that they're probably going to overlap a bit and uh, think about the, the different ways in which we can get involved in, in all of them, which I think is, is a great point. Uh, and there's a particularly interesting theme through the book where she interviews Sadiq Khan, who pops up, I think, in a couple of places throughout the book on what the recovery of our cities actually looks like. Uh, and he talks about how he doesn't want to see the recovery being what he calls bagel shaped, which is where there's uh, stuff going on around the edges of the city, but not so much in, in the centre. He's not saying that we shouldn't have good resources and amenities and communities in our various suburbs. What he's saying is that we need to be thinking about the, the city as a whole. Uh, so, for example, he mentions what experiences can we offer people, whether it's shopping, whether it's a great retail experience on Oxford Street, so that we can entice them out of their homes and onto the tube and offer them something that they just wouldn't get if they were looking at uh, online shopping or watching a video from, from their laptop 
laptop. So I think there's some exciting visions in there for the future. And it's a good book for leaders to read right now as they reimagine their organisations. That sounds excellent. And I think, uh, again, linking to some work that I'm doing at the moment, I think there's a really big opportunity for leaders to ask the question, how do you see the future? I think a lot of the stuff around, in particular, digital transformation, for example, is is uh, around this idea of, of fear. You know, the robots taking over, going back to Clara and the Sun, the robots taking over and automation killing our jobs and, and all that sort of stuff. So being open to that conversation and having the, asking the question has been a time of huge huge challenge and change so what do your employees actually want how do they see the future how do they see their their roles and, and the work that they do shifting i think asking that question is probably the first step for for those leaders sounds great now for our conversation with R. michael hendricks one of the authors of two beats ahead what great musical minds teach us about creativity and innovation which he wrote with panos apanai who didn't make the call, um, unfortunately. So we're just talking to Michael today, who dialed in from his home on the east coast of the US. And just to say in advance of the interview that we have a copy of the book to give away. So listen out for details of how you can enter at the end of the interview. And suffice to say, Zoe and I are big, big fans of this book. So enjoy the interview. We are delighted to be joined today by one of the authors of Two Beats Ahead, What Great Musical Minds Teach Us About Creativity and Innovation by Panos Panay and R. Michael Hendricks. It's a brilliant new book about what great musical minds from Beyonce to Pharrell Williams and Bjork can teach us about innovation and creativity. So much of this book reads as the new modus operandi for leaders, and that's why we're really excited about the conversation today. Over the pandemic, organisations have survived or fallen, depended on whether they could innovate. And we're very excited to talk to one of the authors today. So we're going to be joined today by R. Michael Hendricks. He's a partner and the global design director for IDEO, an innovation and design company. He's also an assistant professor of music business at Berklee College of Music and a musician performing as R.M. Hendricks. I should also mention the other author of the book, Panos Panay. He's the senior vice president for global strategy and innovation at Berklee College of Music and a fellow at MIT Connection Science. And we're very happy to be introduced um, to be um, to have Michael joining us here today. Michael, welcome to Starts to the Top. Thanks, Zoe. Excited to be here. Great, lovely. Uh, well, we were so excited when we heard that you were coming on the podcast because when Paul and I read this book, it really resonated with us and so many of the lessons that we've been trying to communicate to leaders over the last few years. And I was particularly struck by one of the points you raised near the beginning of the book, in fact, in the very first chapter about listening, uh, how leaders can be better listeners and create the space for inspiration. And this is a big recurring challenge I, I hear from leaders that they really want to innovate, but perhaps they just don't have the time to, to make the space to listen and to have their creative news come to them. Uh, and there was a really nice story about that in the book of where Bjork was walking along the beach and these amazing lyrics came to her. So I wondered whether you had any advice for leaders about how they can create that space for that creative spark to come to them. Absolutely. It's um, funny how the brain works, but we tend to go through life trying to edit out as much information as possible around us to reduce our cognitive load, right? And that, that uh, results in a lot of things. It results in us just missing stuff around us, right? Because 
you know, you're, you're walking through the forest and you're like, yeah, tree, 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 you know, and you're not, you're not really processing, oh, well, that's a, you know, a three-year-old maple, that's a 50-year-old birch, etc. Like your brain's not doing that. We also tend to bring biases into everything we do. We anticipate what we expect. Um, and again, it reduces the cognitive load. So basically both of these things are really bad for listening. Both of these human behaviors are very bad for listening because the trick is to, to hack through that and start to recognize that there is inspiration and opportunity around us all the time in every mundane thing that we experience. You know, there's nothing special about the beach that Bjork was on, right? Nothing. I mean, although Iceland is beautiful, I will say, and I, and I do love visiting Iceland, but as a beach, beaches are beaches. The trick is starting to recognize what is there. So the way you do that uh, first is mindfulness, right? And there's a lot of talk about mindfulness today, but that's about being present, recognizing your surroundings. For me, what I often do is um, I take a notebook with me and if I'm traveling to a new place, I could be commuting, I might stop and try to be present and start to recognize what's happening around me, right? And that can be looking at the textures of the surfaces around me, looking at the behaviors of the people. I mean, I used to love to take notes about people in the subway, which sounds really creepy, but <laughs> it's actually very interesting because it's one of those places where we completely zone out, right? And we just, we decide not to notice the people around us. But if you start to notice the people around you, you'll notice they have interesting behaviors. You notice the person that doesn't want to touch anything because they're afraid of getting germs. You know, the person that clearly has no sense of personal space and is spread out across three chairs and don't care that, you know, someone can't sit. And when you start noticing those things, you start to understand life a little more wholly. So in the office, you know, that's how you start to understand your employees better, your cohorts better um, with your consumers in their uh, habitat, so to speak. Those are all the things that we need to be doing to be inspired and listen. And it's about anticipating the moment and the and what's present versus what we expect based on our life experience or our own interest. So it's about getting into the right mindset then to listen and, and observe. Yeah, Miles Davis said, uh, listen for the space between the notes. And that space between the notes is what makes the notes important. That is not the way we normally think about most things. We're, we're not looking for what's not there. We're not listening for what's not there. We're staring things straight in the face. And you often miss the context. Um, and that's one thing we're, we're trying to hint at here in, in this first chapter is that context is everything. And the context is actually the thing we miss the most often. Yes, I, I think that's right. And I've always wondered why they don't teach listening specifically as a school. Maybe they do. You, you, you'll know this better than I, but in on things like leadership programs and in, and in business school as well, because having read your chapter about it, it strikes me that it's so important for creativity, but also just understanding the environment and the context in which you and your organization are operating in. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been some books about something called active listening and things like that, but it's not what we're talking about here. You know, when, when I first met Panos, my co-author, we had no expectations for each other. We, we actually came to, we met each other at a conference and what we brought to meeting each other was anticipation of opportunity without any definition. Now this is a little bit of uh, convoluted, so I'll explain it. Lots of times when people meet each other, especially in a business context, it's almost more like a, a hunter mentality. You know, I've got something I want to sell you, you know, and so I'm going to convince you, right? Or I want to know you so I can get to somebody else. 
you know, it's, it's a little predatory, which makes it sound really creepy. And that's why a lot of people don't like networking. But when, when I met Panos, he and I were both in a, had a searcher's mentality or discoverer's mentality, which is we were both searching for something and we weren't sure what, but we recognized that because of where we both were in the world, there was probably something interesting to search for together, right? And if, in his case, he was bringing entrepreneurship into Berkeley. I was thinking about music and design and innovation. We didn't have an objective when we met. We just had an anticipation that somehow together, something interesting would happen. That's a kind of listening, kind of recognizing that in this context with somebody else, it's not about what they have to, specifically to offer you. It's not about what state of the future you've defined for yourself that you want. It's about having a presence and an anticipation for possibility. And that's a, that's a discipline to have that kind of presence. Um, and I, I talk about it that way because the book is actually all about mindsets. It's not about doing a bunch of stuff, right? And this what's makes I think this makes it different than other business books as well because it's not like, here are the four things to get started on today. Here's how to listen, you know? <laughs> What we're really trying to do is say, here's how to see the world in a new way, the way a musician sees the world. You know, and what I described about Panos and I is the same thing when two musicians come together. You know, someone starts playing, another person just kind of joins along. You don't know if a song's going to come about or not. You actually don't know where it's going to go, right? It, it's that tension to one another, expectation from one another that starts to lead you into a new space. And also that recognizing the environment around you. And obviously, you know, I'm not a massive jazz aficionado, but that's the way jazz works, right? You know, that somebody starts with a different beat or a different rhythm and then everyone else joins in with that and it just goes off in multiple different directions. But the aim is still to create something amazing and create something beautiful, right? So that, that sort of sense of, yeah, a direction of travel, but everyone sort of finding their own space within that conversation as well. Absolutely. And actually, there's a phrase, a phrase um, that's taught in improv music that, that is also related to this idea, which is when you're with other people playing and you get lost, you stop and you listen. And again, it's another example of this idea that it's, it's not about trying to keep up. It's not about trying to impose your idea of where things should be going. It's about the humility, recognizing that you lost the pathway in the framework. And the best way to get back on track is to pause, recognize what's happening around you, and then ease your way back in. There's so much there that leaders, I think, that I'm even speaking to in, in, in the last couple of years could really pay attention to. Yeah, definitely. And, and on that note, I was really interested in the stuff in the book around creating that culture of experimentation and collaboration. And I was particularly uh, struck by the example about how Beyonce and her team, how they created the Lemonade album and, and that point about handing over power to collaborators to ultimately create something really beautiful and meaningful together. Do you have any advice for leaders about how they can create a, a culture like that and also what the barriers are to doing that well collaboration in in the business context is quite difficult sometimes especially when you put teams together often the difficulty there is a lack of trust between people you know they have a culture of distrust a culture of competition uh, when you do put people together the power dynamics are weird you know the the lack of interest in one another is pretty high you know it's not it's not just the business environment i mean i my kids have, you know, are out of high school now, but when they were in high school, they were put on team-based learning projects, you know, and I actually love team-based learning. I think it's great because I believe in it, except for the conditions that they put the students in are just like what I explained, where it's a spectrum of one student is highly competitive, wants to come across as the smartest person on team. One student 
doesn't even show up because they just don't care. And they know that other people will carry the load so they don't contribute in any way. You know, and let's face it, that's what happens at the office as well. A lot of that can be avoided if we think about building those teams differently, right? And this goes back to Beyonce. So, you know, a lot of times when we're building teams, a mistake about building teams could be, let's, you know, put together a team that's all in the same department. We know what happens there. That department is competitive with the other departments. And so therefore they don't share information, you know, make sure Bob doesn't know about so-and-so because we don't want him to find out. And and then immediately what happens is you have divisions in the organization, right? A more advanced company might make cross-functional teams across departments, right? And that's become a more popular idea. And that is a better idea, make cross-functional teams. But often the mistake there is um, once you decide the good thought, which was to make cross-functional teams, you choose the people on a team based on their title, right? Their role, their, their quote, accountability. And you can often end up in the same situation where though you have on paper what looks good, a, a good matrix of verticals and horizontals, you don't necessarily have the right people for the job, right? Just because they have a certain accountability for something within the organization doesn't mean they have the, the experience the qualifications or the talent to actually contribute well to this project team. So then how would Beyonce do it? (laughs) The way Beyonce is going to build teams in your company, it's she's first going to say, what are we trying to accomplish? And it's going to be a little vague. Like we're going to, we're going to make, you know, this choreography, this song, this dance. We don't know exactly what it's going to be because we're going to decide together as collaborators, what it's going to be. All right. So it's not, let's build the objective and then build the team. She's thinking first, I want to find the right collaborators and we'll decide what the objective is. So that's different, right? This, the second part of that is asking, and who do I respect within the organization for being the best at what they do? And that question is not answered by, oh, Sarah, because she has this title. That question is best answered by, do you understand what motivates that person, what their passions are, what their true accomplishments are in the organization? And that doesn't pay attention to role. So with Beyonce, she might go to, um, you know, in the U.S., when she was working on um, a song called Hold Up, she's going to people like Ezra Koenig and Diplo for inspiration. But she's also going to M&E.K. in the U.K., who's not popular in the U.S. at all. But she admired because of his songwriting skills. And when you start to assemble this team of established celebrity, independent artists, based upon their strength as songwriters, you just have a better team. So that's what she does. But she also does something else unique about that. And that she's not saying, I have an assignment for you. I have an assignment for you. I have an assignment for you. And that's best illustrated with her collaboration with Jack White, where she says, Jack, I want to be in a band with you. Now, you know, Jack White, amazingly inventive guitar player, super creative songwriter. She could have went to a session musician and said, oh, I want you to play this solo, this riff, kind of like the White Stripes, and we'll write a song. You know, we'll finish a song that I've written. But she didn't. She said, Jack, I want to be in a band with you. And that that sums up everything for me. It's recognizing that, that peer respect, recognizing the strengths that people have, what they're, what they're known for, and then asking them to bring that with them to collaborate on something with you to see where it would go. That's quite different. So in the workforce, you might be thinking, you know, in my company, whom, whom do I know, for example, that throws great dinner parties. You're like, well, why would that be important? Well, there's someone that's actually paid attention to the personalities in the in the office, right? There's someone that is good at being hospitable. There's someone that knows how to ex- design experiences. Like I might go to them and say, hey, I'm, I'm go- I've got this workshop, workshop I want to do together with you because 
I know you know how to make people feel welcome and engaged and you know how to pull their interest out. And it would be great to have you as a coordinator on this project or as a contributor on this project. We may not necessarily think of those personal passions as personal strengths as useful in the office, unless we think in this framework that I'm talking about. And then it's almost the opposite. You, you would ask, why wouldn't I be thinking this way? And you're right. In so many instances where I've been in rooms where people have been asked to come to the room to bring their ideas, it's been towards a specific goal. The end result needs to be something in this domain. And therefore you are completely constricted from the beginning. And there's no there's no room for sort of a random thought from left of centre to come in and, and, and sort of take something off in a different direction. Whereas musicians are very much in that vein right from the beginning, especially in, in collaborations. And I, I don't know whether this is a, just an anecdotal sort of thought, but I've noticed that certainly in, in the lockdown where musicians haven't been able to tour and they've been forced into much more sort of working at home and, and online collaborations and stuff like that, it just seems to me that there's been even more collaboration in the last year in terms of musicians coming together and doing various different things that you would just wouldn't get normally because they've suddenly had the time to think, well, who do I actually want to work with? Uh, an example that brings to, comes to mind is the recent connection between Sharon Van Etten and Angel Olsen, for example, come together to create one song, which would probably not happen in normal times. It would be an album or it'd have to be something, a tour or something like that, but one song, which was just massively powerful. I think you're absolutely right. There's been a lot of that. Taylor Swift's two surprise albums are a direct result of the pandemic. Totally. Right. It turned out that Aaron Dressner from The National is not touring either. They start trading things. Jack Antonoff gets involved. And next thing you know, you have like, I don't know, 45 songs or something. (laughs) Kind of amazing, actually. But that's absolutely true. Artists were able to reach out to each other and work in a new way because they're not on the road. One of the things I got most excited about was a business book that within chapter three had a reference to like my one of my biggest ever heroes in the music world, Jeff Tweedy and Wilco, who I'm a massive, massive fan of. And there's suddenly in page three of a book that's primarily being presented to me as a business book. There's Wilco. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> this is different. Um, and I really loved that collaboration because that was a piece of work. There was musicians bringing an aesthetic to a, to a hotel. Can you tell us a bit more about that? This is like one of those pleasant surprises in my own life. So um, in Massachusetts, where I live in the, in the Berkshires, there's a hotel called Tourist. It's unique in that it had uh, several people coming together, but one of those people is John Stierat, the bassist from Wilco. What John said, I, I, talk, I talked to him about it. He said, you know, he'd been on the road for you know, decades. Started out in the 80s as, a, as an indie artist, really enjoyed the community of that indie rock community, the indie rock fans, the the bands, the venues. And that was, you know, really what kept him motivated as a musician is to be able to have that camaraderie with people. And he said he noticed as touring went on, uh, you know, decades later that he was starting to see some of the same spirit in this rise of coffee shops and boutique hotels, that there's the same kind of community spirit going in who was putting those together, who was working there, how they felt about the environment they were making, the culture they were creating. And he thought, you know, this is uh, really an extension of what I've been doing in music for a long time. And I think I'd like to get involved. And, and he admitted, he thought that was kind of weird because he was always kind of stick it to the man in his indie rock <laughs> mindset. And then here he is becoming a businessman, an entrepreneur. Tourist came about because of that idea that he, he wanted to pull together. He had 
you know, been in some hotels in Austin that he really admired. He had met some people there that had started those hotels. And he wanted to do something similar in the Berkshires where Wilco had doing a music festival for the last couple of years at Mass Mocha. Uh, so that what interested me about that was just really what the whole point of the book is, is that, you know, the, the musician's mind is just seeing the world in a, in a different way than we often give ourselves permission to do. And in this case, he's connecting the dots between how communities are built, how different people in those communities can complete the aesthetic or the experience of something whole, right? And a band does this, right? A band does this on a micro level, like Wilco, in fact. You know, you have a collection of great musicians, great individual musicians that all have their own pursuits as well that come together to make a new whole. And in putting together tours, it was the same thing. You have, you know, a restaurateur, uh, a land developer, a music festival, uh, and branding expert, a bass player from a band coming together to build a new kind of environment. And uh, I've really enjoyed getting to be part of that community myself. And it really feels that way. I think they've done a great job of building a truly hospitable environment. Let's see if we can get a start at the top podcast offsite there, maybe, Paul. <laughs> see if we, we can justify that on expenses. Do some we planning while we're there. Yeah, yeah. I'll come sit by the pool with you. <laughs> We'd love that. We'd love that. Great recommendation. Thank you. Uh, so I wanted to come back to the point about innovation. And one of the things that really stood out for me in the book was about when you follow, when you should follow a process for innovation, but also to your point earlier about when you should just trust your instinct and go with it. So do you have any thoughts for leaders on how they can strike the right balance there between process and instinct to innovate successfully? This question is close to my heart because uh, coming from design and seeing how design thinking has become more broadly adopted across business, I've been as excited about that as I've been put off by it. And the reason I've been put off by it is because I think a lot of people look at process as recipe for success or formula for success. You know, if I do A plus B plus C, I'll get D. And they often forget that it's the perspective and the people that you put into that process that are actually going to make it work or not. And so when I hear people talk about, oh, well, we tried we tried this particular innovation process and it didn't result in anything. You know, my first questions are about like, well, well tell me about who did it, like how you managed it, because there's nothing magical about any of these processes, nothing. What makes them effective is the perspective that you bring into them and the people that you put into them. That's the first recommendation you have for anybody is it goes back to like, how are you, how are you putting your teams together? How are you creating a brief that allows for enough exploration and discovery you know, an example there would be um, lots of times when people put together innovation briefs, they try to answer the question in their brief. And what I mean by this, that would be as um, help us increase our customer retention by improving our website. I just answered what I think the problem is in my question or my statement, which is, I think I have a customer retention problem because of my website. That might be true, but I would be more curious to be asking like, how might digital tools increase engagement of our customers. And that allows for a lot more discovery and inspiration. It also doesn't try to solve the problem in the brief. Digital tools could be a lot of different things, right? Um, so this often happens in the formula is the formula is trying to answer a very 
well-defined question. And that well-defined question is actually cutting out all the discovery and opportunity. The other thing I would say about process is um, we often get caught in a time trap. So I had, there's an example in the book of, of uh, Radiohead and their commitment to experimentation and archiving their experimentation, which is super interesting, right? Because, I mean, we know them as a, a band that has been able to kind of stay in that line of an experimental on the edge, but enough pop awareness to be able to stay in the, in the cultural mainstream. But the way they've gotten there has been interesting in that they are often writing new music, each of them individually, but those songs might sit for years. There was a, a mini disc leaked a couple of years ago that revealed this. It was, you know, songs from say 95, 96, right before OK Computer came out and um, had them anointed as guitar rock gods. The interesting thing about if you listen to that mini disc, you'll hear songs that were not released at all that didn't make any sense for an album like OK Computer and that the band probably couldn't figure out what to do with either. But they came out when Kid A came out after OK Computer and people were like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. This is so different. Actually, they were working on those songs in 1995, 1996 too. And they had songs that came out in 2010 on In Rainbows. They even had a song that came out 20 years later on A Moonshaped Pool. That is discipline. And that's recognizing that your experiments, if they don't match the context today, they may match the context tomorrow. So I take this back to the idea of process and uh, intuition. We have to give ourselves permission to recognize that context changes and therefore the relevance of your experiments, your endeavors changes as well. And what doesn't work today may work tomorrow. So don't judge, even if you go through a process, a formula, you put a team on something and something doesn't work, I wouldn't call that failure or a waste. I would just recognize it that in that moment, in those conditions, it wasn't really a match, but in the future, it might be, you know, and I have a client that does this. He, I mean, he once uh, showed me a notebook where he had written down ideas from 1994, 1995 that were essentially describing things that needed cloud computing, services that needed cloud computing when cloud computing didn't exist. But now he can use them. He can, he, I mean, he literally brought them out. It's like, oh, I've been thinking, I want to go back and revisit, revisit this 20-year-old idea. And I'm like, that's great because it actually can work now. So it's a discipline. Um, it's also a recognition that context changes and you have to be willing to capture those things, uh, be able to reference them, be able to share them again and not judge so harshly when things don't work out the way you expect. You hear that in the film industry as well, don't you? Sometimes film directors and writers have an idea for a film but they know that the technology has not yet been invented for them to actually put it on the screen. And so they do something else to fill the time between the time. <laughs> and then somebody goes, or they invent the technology themselves. So I'm trying to think of an example, but the IMAX, for example, IMAX technology was developed in order for us to put you know, bigger images up on a screen, perhaps to keep up with it. So I think they, you see that in different, in different disciplines as well, where you just don't throw anything away. An old idea is, is still an idea and it's still a good one. Absolutely. And then building on the point about innovation, I think that takes us logically to reinvention. Uh, and towards the end of the book, uh, there's some great stuff about how organisations uh, have, have reinvented themselves over the years. And also as, as, as we went into the, the pandemic towards around the point where the book closes in March of last year. Uh, can you tell us your advice for leaders about how they can look to reinvent themselves as we begin to slowly edge out of the pandemic? 
Yes. Yeah, so I, lo I love that chapter because it, it feels so relevant. And we also were careful not to just choose digital companies that had pivoted and pivoted and pivoted because that seems kind of obvious that, you know, you could do that. So it's much harder when you think about companies that have been around for a hundred years and you start to recognize the reason they have been around a hundred years is because they have been able to somehow shift the purpose of their organization or the product and service to continue to evolve with cultural needs and business needs. You know, one of those examples is Fujifilm. And I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. We know that um, Fujifilm has actually come through a massive digital revolution and still exists, by the way, <laughs> as a brand. But, but the way they made it through that revolution is very interesting. They recognized at some point that because between them and Kodak, whom didn't really make it, I mean, the Kodak you see today is really just a licensed brand. They were seeing a complete disruption to the film industry. So initially what Fuji did is they, they partnered with Xerox. They got into photocopiers. And like you, you might ask, like, well, why would a film company get into photocopiers? And it partly goes back to what you think about yourself. I think they were starting to think about reproduction of images, right? So like how meta can you get about what you're doing, basically? And by meta, I mean, you know, it's the, it's the overarching story about what you do. But often that overarching story is actually the core of who you are as well, like your purpose in the world. So that was an interesting partnership to start thinking about. But, but they also were looking at other kinds of experiments too, up, up into the 2000s. And one of those is recognizing they had all these other assets. And what could you do with these assets? Because, I mean, if you're an old company, you've invested in a lot of infrastructure, right? And so in their case, one of the things they recognized is that they had technologies that were UV protectants that kept photos from fading. And they thought, well, what else can you do with that? Um, and, one, and believe it or not, they started a cosmetic company um, in Japan. You know, they made face creams with UV protection, you know, that would be anti-aging. And that was a whole new adjacent business for them that also produced some income for them as they continued to weather the digital revolution and start to recognize how they could get back into image making and image reproduction. So I guess there's a twofold strategy there, right? There's first like understanding the, the meta narrative, which often is your core, and then recognizing how your assets might be repurposed to help create opportunity for you to go forward. I would say this is a musical mindset for sure. I know, and, and um, we, we begin this chapter reinvention talking about David Bowie because he certainly was a pop star who reinvented himself over and over and over again, theatrically, right? He had this character and that character and this, this theme for this record and that theme for the record. You know, and you can go all the way from Ziggy Stardust or Aladdin Sane to, you know, his character Lazarus uh, right before he passed away and get a sense for what he was doing. But he had a meta-narrative too, and actually revealed this in an interview, which he said, you know, at the core, I'm just a songwriter. You know, I only write, I only write about three or four things. <laughs> and I don't remember what they were, but it's, it's basically like loneliness, a search, et cetera, et cetera. And then he manifests that in some kind of theatrical way as the art form inspires him to do, you know, in combination with cultural shifts. So if you could look at someone like him, then you can understand how Lady Gaga does it. You can understand how Madonna did it. You can understand how, how Fuji did it, right? Or a company like Nokia, um, who is who has transformed quite a bit, or you know, a brand like National Geographic, another one that's actually transformed quite a bit. But it's all it's starting to get back and recognize the meta story and your core. I loved the example within that section. Again, another another moment where I kind of read and and, and punched the air, which was um reinvention through necessity. I can't remember the exact turn of phrase, but you went for this is on the double page. So I'm looking at two pages of a book, and on the one hand, you've got the emergence from the COVID from COVID and 
how you know Berkeley and all universities across the road had to, uh, across the road world had to suddenly reinvent the the learning experience if they turned around to the people that run those universities and said 10 days before the pandemic this is what we're going to do everyone would have been called insane and they would never have done it and then on the opposite page you've got um rick allen from def leopard after his um car accident having to reinvent drumming from his hospital bed and that's a punch of the air moment where i went covid to def leopard in two in in several paragraphs it's just <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah. We, when we were writing that chapter, we were said, oh, yeah, it's great that you can work from a place of privilege and decide what you want to do next, you know, as an individual or a company. But what about when you don't have that choice, when the choice is thrown at you? And the Def Leppard example is great. Gloria Estefan is another one. She's uh, rising to a, a peak success. She's in a massive bus accident that breaks her spine. And she has to basically start again, you know, and she does. She overcomes those odds with the love of her family. And um, he rises even higher as a star. But these are often, I mean, COVID was nothing we expected. And none of us could imagine we'd be locked in our houses for over a year. And so I, I think a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of us as individuals and as organizations have had to rethink who we are and what we do, why we do it. Perhaps that's a gift, actually, to be able to think this, because we can strip back all the things that were distracting us, all the things we thought were necessary, and begin to ask, what are we really good at? What do we really care about? Who do we really care about? And how do we re-engage with those things that, that we find fulfilling and meaningful? Absolutely. And just a couple more points that I thought would be nice to, to round out conversation with. And one is related to Gloria Estefan, actually, and she, I think, from the, from the book, there was um, she addressing an audience at Berkeley, I think, and 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 she sort of talked about a world getting too comfortable. And I certainly see this in in business, uh, where I've sort of spent most of my last ten years, where there seems to be this all pervasive attitude of doing the least possible for the most amount of money. And she she said something that I wrote down, which was sharpen your tools because the more you learn, the better you can be. And that really talks to me about this idea of like plurality and, and, and range. And I just thought that was a, a really nice sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I like that you brought up plurality too, because I, I think that's one of the things we're trying to, to emphasize in the book is that we are many things. We are many people. We've created work environments that don't encourage that, that actually discourage that. There's an entrepreneur in the book named Steve Stout, who has a company called Translation. And he, he talks about, you know, when he's hiring software developers, he's as interested in their passions as he is in their hard skills. And he calls it majors and minors. And he, as he's building his teams, he's looking at their majors and their minors. And you might get put on a team because of your minor, not because of your major. And it, it speaks to this plurality idea that there's, a, there's a, a bigger self that has more to contribute. And being sharp, as Gloria says, about those things is important. I, it goes back to the Beyonce example. People need to know what you're great at, the thing that you're great at the heart of your passion so they can call on you for that as a collaborator and i think that's one thing she's getting at in there it's like if people know why to call you they will call you you know because you're great at x or you believe in x etc um and that's quite important we have to end, end it there sadly uh, there's so many more bits and pieces that we could could delve into but i think we're gonna have to end it there but thank you so much for your your time this afternoon it's been really exciting to to speak to you and 
yeah, we, we hope we hope this episode can do the book justice. And actually, I'd said that I would give this to my brother-in-law to read next, but I'm not. I'm going to keep it. I might buy him a copy. So I'm, I'm definitely going to keep this one. It's a fantastic book and uh, we'd, we'd really recommend it to anyone. Thank you, Paul. It's uh, the best book that I've read so far this year, Michael. It's, it's superb and it's it's been an honour to talk through your thought process and your ideas from it today. So thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Well, thanks for having me on the show. So thank you for listening to episode nine of season three and it's competition time. All you need to do to win a copy of the book is subscribe to our newsletter, which will start with our new season in September. The link to sign up is in the show notes and on our website and we'll be sharing it across our social media posts. We'll pick a winner at random, probably on the 2nd of August, which is the first Monday of August. And that book is really, really worth winning. So that's the end of this season, Zoe. A big thank you to Michael and all of our amazing guests from the season. We'll be back in the autumn. And if you know any leaders who are doing amazing work with digital, please do let us know and we'll ask them to come onto the show. Please do send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel that you'll do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at at starts at the top one at starts at the top one. And you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. And thank you very much for listening. And if you are listening on a platform where you can leave a review, please leave us a review and five stars would be lovely as always speak to you soon speak to you soon everyone thanks for listening